Pennsylvania has a long tradition of manufacturing centers. They called them ironworks, places where people came together to build things. This podcast is about building and sustaining our democracy. We call it Democracy Works. Hello, I'm Michael Berkman, director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, and I'm here, as always, with (laughs) Chris Beam, the managing director. Hey, Chris. Hello there. We're going to be talking today with Hallie Stockton, a proud alumna of Penn State University and the managing editor of uh, Public Source in Pittsburgh. Uh, We're going to be talking about the press today. Yeah, it's a, a really important subject and one that fits naturally within the whole framework of Democracy Works. Uh, this is, you know, an issue that is fundamental to uh, democracy and especially American democracy. It's built it's into the First Amendment. The First Amendment, which is pretty darn important. And you have um, the founders seeing this as an essential piece of a democracy that you, you know, you have Jefferson saying that if he had to choose between government and a free press, he'd pick the free press without hesitation. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this today because uh, media has obviously been itself in the news quite a bit uh, since the beginning of the uh, Donald Trump campaign uh, because of his constant attacks on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And some virulent and and, uh, I think uh, unprecedented. Yeah, unprecedented. You know, it was uh, you go back to Watergate and Nixon had quite a bit to say about the about the press and famously didn't allow the Washington Post into the White House right. at, at some point after they started reporting on, on Watergate. But but even that just seems like child's play compared to some of what Donald Trump was up to at his rallies and since he's been in office. The uh, enemy of the people. Yeah, that was that was quite a line. And, and, and it's had an effect, too. I mean, one thing that we've seen in our McCourtney Mood of the Nation poll pretty consistently is that... Uh, the constant attacks have had an effect in that uh, Republicans constantly tell us now how, uh, you know, we ask them, what are you angry about? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? And it's the media. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even see that when we first started polling in 2015. It developed during the course of the campaign to, to where now it seems to be the thing that upsets Republicans more than just about anything else. Which is really, really dramatic in terms of just how quickly that changed. Yeah. And it's it's to me, it's it's a scary thing in a democracy if people can't trust the media. It, it reinforces this us versus them narrative. Yeah. I mean, Steve Bannon talks about this quite a bit, actually, where he says the opposition party is not the not the Democratic Party. It's the media. Right. And yet your argument is that there's something uh, paradoxical about this attack. Well, because uh, in some quarters, the press is doing better than it's than certainly we've seen it in many, many years. Right. Right. Absolutely. I I think that's right. This is a this is a real uh, amazing time uh, in terms of journalistic output in America, especially in these papers you're talking about. But in general, I mean, I've seen some uh, coverage, local coverage of like the opiate crisis. Oh, yeah. Remember the Cincinnati Inquirer did a phenomenal series on that. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think it's true that when we're talking about success within the media, that we have to distinguish between these national outlets and uh, local and state coverage. With local newspapers, state governments, which are responsible for so much of what goes on, I mean, everything that goes on around elections, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, are just uh, operating in the dark right. in many places now. And and so the very uh, tools that uh, 
our founding Democrats thought were essential to sustaining this democracy aren't there. But the other point I just want to mention is that um, the the very famous observer of uh, democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville, um, argued that that new local newspapers are important not just in terms of conveying information, but in creating a sense of community. It, uh, he actually says at one point that newspapers are necessary for civilization because a newspaper is the one means by which a local community can identify common problems, can uh, develop a debate around common solutions, and in the course of that can kind of overcome some of the individualism that he thought was the most dangerous part of democracy. So it'll be interesting to hear from Halley how, um, how this new model of journalism seeks to uh, address that fundamental issue as well. Yeah, I, I hear two pieces to that, actually. I mean, one is that there's just so much that's going on at what I would think of as the street level in terms of uh, government and how people are living their lives. It just is lost. Without right. local news coverage, there's no way to do it. The, the other piece of what you're talking about, of course, is this community building aspect that papers may have. Uh, of course, we have all kinds of new ways now of, course, of building of course. community and right. you know, and, connecting, and, and, and connecting people. Anyway. Right, and that's, yeah. a, that's a real question, too. And obviously, the decline of this former business model has just made that all the more exigent, all the more necessary to try to find other ways to do this. Yeah. All right, well, why don't we bring in Hallie and, and hear from the expert. Hallie, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy Works. Thanks for having me. And I'm so excited to, to talk to you about um, all the great work that you're doing at a public source. But before we get to that, let's kind of set some basics. So can you tell everyone uh, what public source is and what your role is there? Sure. Public source is a nonprofit, independent, digital-first media organization. So in human speak, that means that uh, we are focused on in-depth and investigative journalism in the Pittsburgh region. And uh, we are supported by foundations primarily and a growing group of individual donors. I'm the managing editor, so that means that I'm directing the, um, the editorial strategy and uh, have my hands in uh, essentially everything that we do, which is um, a, a journalism on social justice issues, environment, health, um, economic development, um, but we also have an education and events component. Great. And so those those topics you were just mentioning, um, how did you come to decide, you know, there's like six or eight of them or so on, on your site that you cover. How did you choose those topics in particular? Well, they're they're really broad <laughs> topics. <laughs> I mean, social justice encompasses so much, um, as does environment, health, education. Uh, some of it uh, came about organically. You know, we're only six years old. Uh, and at that time, we were just like, we, we do in-depth and investigative journalism because we were formed to fill the gap um, with the declining newspapers and other media. Uh, you know, we don't cover weather, sports, traffic. We really focus on uh, more stu substantive uh, news. And so these were things that we started to naturally gravitate toward. And then we kind of cemented them and, and got reporters to, to fill in those specific beats and with their expertise. Pittsburgh is kind of unique in that it is still a two newspaper town, right? And so where does where does public source fit within that the overall media landscape in Pittsburgh? Public source is fitting in in a way that um, 
people are are seeing it as as a more straightforward platform for uh, the the type of news that they're not getting elsewhere and the type of voices they're not getting elsewhere. Um, we really strive to uh, to talk with people who often aren't heard from, aren't consulted with on issues of you know community development on um, on issues of you know even as high level as race and racism mm -hmm. and so when we're talking about uh, sourcing for our stories we consider that when we're looking at our website we're trying to figure out who who are we and aren't we representing are we pigeonholing a certain group of people into a certain type of story um, and we're really cognizant of that so um, we believe that that kind of analysis um, and, and foresight put into our reporting and, and everything that we do, um, even you know the topics we choose um, to really uh, to really focus on, it sets us apart. And what is your what role does does the the community itself play in that in terms of feedback you get and, and things like that? We engage with the community quite a bit um, via social media, but also in person. So a couple of the ways that we uh, interact with people um, are one through uh, educational events. We call um, those our citizens toolkits. Um, we have several different offerings there, uh, some on just how to tell your story. Um, so we have a whole component of our site that is first person storytelling. We'll work with anybody uh, on issues that are personal to them so that they can tell tell their story. We work with them on composition, structure, um, questions, um, just to make it a really solid story. But people who thought that they could never write are now able to to share something um, of, of import to them. But also we, you know, ensure that it matches um, or passes our the kind of the litmus test of what what others may need to know um, and kind of breaking those like those bubbles in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. um, we also have events. Um, so we bring in, uh, you know, larger, larger speakers. Um, Tarana Burke, the founder of the, the Me Too movement, um, recently came in. We had a thousand people there for oh, that. Wow. Um, so people were, were coming there because we brought the speaker in and it's something that was really important to them. But then they're also able to um, learn about public source and our mission. And, and we've heard from a lot of those uh, people who attended um, about ideas of their own. Um, so we're tapping into groups of people who uh, who may have never even heard of or considered <laughs> mm -hmm. talking to a journalist mm -hmm. about an issue. Mm -hmm. um, with those uh, citizens toolkits, one of the interesting, uh, most interesting ones and most popular courses we offered is on detecting fake news. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I saw uh, that on your website. Yeah. <laughs> so we have in-person classes on that, but because of the um, demand, we also um, created our first email course. It's a three-day email course, breaking down, introducing what is fake news, um, what you know, why all of a sudden you're hearing about it. Um, what it truly is, and then how to detect it, how to deal with it, and where you can get credible news. Yeah, that's great. And I think that, you know, those types of outreach events really speak to what Chris and Michael were talking about in regard to, to Tocqueville and how, you know, the, the media can play a role in, you know, bringing people together and creating a, a common sense of, of community. Um, I'm curious, though, with the, 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 the Me Too speaker as an example. So um, did you take into consideration at all whether bringing whether the, the speakers you bring would create the perception that you are somehow endorsing what this person had to say or maybe taking one side of an issue versus versus another? In that issue, 
I, I'm, it wasn't too much of a concern to, to, I think, take a stand in that, like, right. we're not, like, we're not yeah, worried we're not about, ing- up for, yeah. yeah, we're not super worried about, like, looking like we're against yes. sexual yeah. assault. Yeah. Um, so that is, wasn't a, a concern for us. Now, in, in the past, we have had these, um, these considerations. We, we brought J.D. Vance of Hillbilly Elegy. Oh, right. Um, really, you know, really interesting book, um, but definitely split, um, ideology and some people who didn't have a a great reaction to, to him and and what he was writing about. Um, but it was part, we were, we were doing a project focused on small town Pennsylvania issues and, um, and it fit into Oh yeah, perfect speaker to bring in that regard for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, and so I know that the public source does, as you said, a lot of long form investigative type of journalism. So, um, how do you make sure that those stories capture people's attention in the age of Twitter and scrolling through stories on your phone and, you know, those type of things? Well, uh, I mean, part of that is just being privy to innovation in journalism. You know, we, we do uh, virtual reality. We've been dabbling with it. We do, you know, things with animation. Um, we're putting data in with, like, illustrations. Um, so it's it's attracting a, a different, like, all different kinds of mm-hmm. groups, and it's making it more accessible. Um, but uh, it, it's uh, essentially, like, just trying to make sure that we're putting out something good and a lot of people think that or assume that our audience skews older when in fact um all of our analytics show that 25 to 34 is actually our oh, that's our core audience so they're they're have faith in the, <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. millennials things, things are maybe not quite as dire as chris and michael were making it seem in their introduction right perhaps um great and so um, I, I think there's also this big, even among, you know, that, that 25 to 34 demographic, you're still competing for, for people's attention, right? And so is there a, a tension at all between, you know, writing things that will be catchy and appealing and, and, and catch people's attention versus things that are maybe a little bit more hard-hitting or, or substantive or, um, you know, how do you strike the, the balance between those two things? Well. I mean, we're never we're never gonna fall victim to clickbait. I, that's just something that we've decided we we cannot do. Um, we firmly believe that people's stories and seeing other people going through certain things are is catchy enough, and and it continues um, to prove itself over and over again. Um, we. Uh, you know, of course, we have to write interesting headlines, but we're not taking on, we're not teasing people and confusing (laughs) or misleading anybody. That's just not something that we can do. Um, But by using, um, you know, just by employing investigative strategies, great narrative storytelling and and some innovative practices, um, we, we think that our audience will only continue to grow. Great. And so Chris and Michael were talking in their, their introduction about all of the, um, attacks on the media coming out of, of Washington. Um, are, are you and, and your team feeling any of, of that impact when you're out doing your reporting or, or putting your stories together? Surprisingly enough, even in Pittsburgh, we are. Um, there, you know, it started off as kind of uh, sources kind of laughing about it, like, oh, are you the fake news? Mm-hmm. Um, but even in the past few months, when we've had some uh, really important uh, stories drop, um, those institutions who we've pressured in those stories through our reporting have, um, you know, we, we have heard rumors that about us, them trying to cast us as 
as mm. fake news um, to essentially discredit the reports. Uh, it's and that's really troubling. Yeah. I mean, it's you know we're we're there doing our jobs and um, and they disagree with it or you know didn't want that to be reported, right. and so they're they're using this platform that's been created mm-hmm. by the president uh, that you know this is this is news I don't agree with. And fake news is not news I don't agree with. The fake news is legitimate and right. it's a real problem, but it's separate from what, you know, I, I don't like it. Right. So um, how do you how do you counter that? We just continue doing our jobs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and until, you know, if they want to put something out, uh, these institutions, if they if it, if it goes beyond rumors and kind of, you know, talking in, in internal uh, situations of, uh, about us in that way. If it goes beyond that, then then we will report on it. Just just another facet of us doing our jobs. Mm-hmm. And so, can you talk a little bit more about what role the the foundations play, if any, besides the the funding they they contribute? So there's a firewall between the just like in newspapers mm-hmm. between business and, mm-hmm. and news. There's a firewall between um, foundations and news, although it's not the same. The totally the same as as like the traditional um, a lot of traditional journalists, I think, would be a little bit more wary of it. Um, the the closest, however, that uh, that any uh, foundation or some sort of supporter would get would be. I I'll will fund this project on just because I mentioned it earlier the charter mm-hmm. school impact mm-hmm. twenty years later we tell them in the same breath as hey will you give us this money also you can't tell us what to do with right, it right. which is a, an interesting concept um, for a lot of funders too it's it's new it's relatively new for foundations to be. Um, to be giving money to support media. Um, but they're realizing that it is such an important part of our democracy and it does serve the public that it's becoming now something that they need to uh, put money toward. Right. And uh, do, you, do you worry at all that you know, foundations tend to maybe kind of move from one project to another based on the, the desires of the board or you know, whoever's in, in, in charge of, of running that, that, that particular organization? Do you worry about those kinds of things that they're just going to decide that something else is going to come up and become the the hot new thing to to put their money toward yeah yeah we worry about that uh it would be irresponsible not to worry about it and so um we try to look at it as you know we need to not only diversify our funders so that we don't get in in a bad position of if somebody decides oh we want to move on or if somebody decides we didn't like that story um that we're not in a position where we're in complete dire straits because uh, because we lost that funder. So we're, we're looking to diversify funders, but also building that individual donor base. So we need to convince people that journalism is worth supporting, that it's just as uh, vital as as your vote, you know, in the midterms and the generals, um, that that by, you know, a, a monthly donation or a annual donation that it's um, it's really a vote for accountability and transparency in your community. I know on your, your website you list um, some of the impacts that, that that public source has had, policies that have been changed or, or things that are substantive, substantively different as, as a result of the, the reporting you've done. Can you talk about some of those impacts? Sure. Um, one of the most recent ones was with Chatham University. It's a small university in Pittsburgh. Um, it used to be all-female and recently moved um, to co-ed. And we reported on uh, a policy in their honor code. 
um, never had never been written about before, and it was essentially a policy that treated self-harm as a disciplinary matter. Um, and, you know, it, it just escaped, I think, oversight for decades. And, uh, and also the stories of students who, who had been expelled from school, mm. dismissed from campus housing for, um, for incidents of self-harm, suicidal ideation, suicidal attempts, um, they, those had just been never told. Um, we told those stories, kind of broke down this, on, this, this policy from the honor code, uh, looked at um, some other uh, national uh, kind of precedent for this, mm-hmm. talked to some experts. Um, and when we put that out within 24 hours, the uh, university launched a task force to review it. Oh, wow. Um, within, I think it was about a month, they removed the policy from the honor code and actually put in additional language surrounding mental health issues and support for their students. Students weren't going to get mental health support mm-hmm. on campus because they felt like they were going to get expelled. Right. So right. while it's, you know, it's a small campus, it's about a thousand students at a time. This is, you know, this had been there for decades with however many students affected. We, we couldn't really quantify that because the school wasn't going to tell us right right um but we had we had dozens of people sharing through with us through a reporter and then on social media Mm -hmm. so it was definitely an issue um and and now you have you know new student body every year and now they won't have to hopefully be as concerned about this right so as we start to, to come toward the, the end here um where where do you see public source going looking forward there, there are a lot of opportunities. Um, I, right now, we're really, we're really focused on the um, Pittsburgh region. I think that there's, um, I think in the future, there's opportunity and possibility that um, we could have uh, somebody in in Harrisburg um, covering uh, covering state governmental issues in the public source oh, way. That would be great. Yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of speaking to to what Chris and Michael were talking about the the lack of focus on state houses and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be like the newspaper way. Right, right, it would right. be like the public service journalism <laughs> way. Like, what can we help you understand, mm-hmm. um, and and how is it going to affect you? Uh, and and it, I think that additionally, we just need to continue to to grow um, in the Pittsburgh region. There are there are so many stories to tell, just like with any community that aren't being told. Um, and and we hope to just con- continue to bolster that mission. Hallie, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy Works. Great conversation. Thank you. All right. Well, we're back. And um, this is Chris Beam and Michael Bergman is here. And also with us is uh, Jenna Spinelli, who was who is our correspondent at large. But in this case, we thought we would bring her into uh, to this ending section because she is uh, far more uh, experienced and educated at, with respect to these issues than we are, because she has a background in journalism, and she's an instructor in the College of Communications. So yeah, still not welcome. getting any more money for this. No, 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 nope. no, no, no. Nope. Don't don't ever expect that to happen. But we'll give you all kinds of titles. Well, maybe from the College of Communications. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so we're we're back just to kind of talk about uh, that really interesting interview with uh, Hallie, and you know the the basic. What's basically going on here is um, her ProPublica, her, her uh, public source, is an example of trying to find a viable model for local journalism in an age where 
the former models just aren't working. And, um, you know, effectively, her model now, uh, and, and ProPublica is another example of this, is driven by and supported by foundations. So what you have is journalism as a nonprofit enterprise. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that reflected in a lot of things that she was saying. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is interesting what she said about the the kind of the, the wall that goes up is similar to how in the, the old, you know, corporate newspaper model, there's a line between business and, and editorial, right? So those sides of the house don't typically cross very often. And it sounds like it's the same thing with the, the foundation. So a foundation might endow a particular project that they would like public source to cover, but they don't dictate anything about how that topic is covered. So, yeah, I mean, I think you, you could certainly make the argument that the issues that they choose to cover or, or not to cover are dictated by the, the foundations that support public source. But the way that those issues are covered, it sounds like, at least from what Hallie said, they have you know pretty wide open latitude to, to cover the stories however they, they see fit. Yeah, and without the uh, circulation pressures and without the advertising pressures that uh, private ownership would entail. Yeah, I actually um, wrote down uh, luxury mm -hmm. a couple times mm -hmm. while she was talking. They have the luxury of um, that they don't have to uh, look for clickbait headlines. They don't have to uh, talk to the, the normal, um, important people in the community. They can go out and talk to people whose voices aren't normally heard from. Well, that's all good, but that's possible because they have an alternative funding source. Right. And so it's not as, you know, a firewall, you know, I mean, maybe not. Or, yeah. you know, maybe not in, in, a, in a specific, we want you to cover this, but um, we like that you're covering this. Yeah, uh, yeah. and I mean, I, I think that's, that's all true. I, I also don't know that anyone has come up with a better alternative, at I least this far. I mean, I think you guys talked a lot about all the, you know, doom and gloom of declining <laughs> newspaper revenue. So this We're is at least a bright gloom. spot in, in some, some sense of that. And, and you know, maybe as, as time goes on and this model does catch on in, in, in other places, maybe there, there will be a way to, to address some of those concerns. Right, and they're hitting the demographic that seems to me anyway is uh, most, well, least interested in traditional local right. newspapers mm -hmm. and the like, right? So they're hitting a younger audience that's used to being online, uh, that's not as wedded to uh, an old model that's, uh, I mean, I was struck by something she said. That they're not, these are not readers who are going to open up a newspaper to find out what the weather is. Right, and right. And they know, you know, who still does that? Yeah. And yeah. It, it tells you something about who's reading local newspapers. And that is a counter argument to my claim, you know, my criticism, if that's what it was, about luxury, because it, it probably is the case that that demographic is more interested in those kinds of stories and in those kinds of, uh, you know, distinctiveness and, and th those ideas and those methods that are distinctive from you know, typical traditional journalism. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think the idea, I mean, people are always going to be interested in stories, no matter if you're 25 or, or 85. So it's about, you know, finding the right match of, of media and, um, you know, how, how to get that, that message out. And it sounds like Public Source is, is doing that through their, not only their, their reporting, but also they're doing some innovative things with data and with graphics and trying to move beyond the, the realm of a traditional, like, words on screen type mm -hmm. of news story. Yeah, what's disturbing to hear, though, I mean, uh, I'm listening to, to Hallie, who's obviously very smart and articulate, takes her job very seriously, 
uh, sees herself as a professional and their work is dismissed as fake news. And, and, and so the, uh, the, the type of uh, attacks that we're seeing is, is filtering down beyond the New York Times and CNN. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really disturbing that people don't engage what they might disagree with or engage what they might not like to hear, but rather just dismiss it by, you know, in effect, attacking the professionalism of the people mm -hmm, reporting mm -hmm. it. Well, the other thing that I found interesting about her response to that was um, that her answer to how do you respond to this, what do you do when, when people call you fake news, is exactly what you hear from reporters at New York Times mm -hmm. or CNN or anybody else who's, who's had that thrown at them, and that's, I just do my job, and I do my job as well as I can, and I try to sustain a level of professionalism, and really, at the end of the day, that's all you can do. I mean, you know, you can, you can, uh, you can only uh, dispute <laughs> a, a false claim by m demonstrating that it's a false claim, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and I think it's, it makes it a much more difficult climate for journalists, but it also um, gives them just that much stronger an incentive to do really good work. And I think so that kind of gets back yeah. to the paradox that you were talking about mm -hmm. earlier. I have a feeling that that sort of credibility is going to be very hard to mm -hmm. get back. And, and which is part of, you know, once you start, once you start sort of destroying people's sense, destroying the legitimacy of institutions, it's awfully hard to get it back. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's part of why I anyway tend to think that those attacks are, are pretty dangerous in the long term. See, see, Jenny, you just can't get us past <laughs> yeah. the gloom and doom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just where we live. Yeah. That's our wheelhouse. So it's always going to get back there yes. well, sooner well, or later. Yes, having said, but having said that, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with the work they're doing. I, I mean, agree. it seems like they're discussing really important and interesting stories. It seems like they are able to affect change. I mean, I thought that was the story about the college, mm -hmm. was that, you know, they're making a difference. They're probably reaching other other places, too, that are acting upon what they're, they're their talking about. Their work absolutely yeah. demonstrates mm -hmm. the power and the, the necessity of local media. Yeah. And, and I also I agree with you completely that, that what this demonstrates is, you know, the old model might have declined and may even be go, dying, but the need – for and and the hunger for local journalism has not, and so y what you're seeing is this uh, this panoply of creative efforts to find a new way for meeting that need. For sure. Not only not only the interesting topics that they cover on there, but also take a look at the uh, take a look at the people that are working there. It's impressive. I agree. Mm -hmm. I right. agree. So can I can I try to bring this to a close on on the perhaps a more positive that's note. Why, that's why we brought you all into right, this. All right, all right. Yeah. So, so as, as you mentioned, Chris, I do teach in the College of Communications here at Penn State, and I tell my students all the time that there is no better time to be studying journalism. You guys might disagree with that, but I, I think that uh, Hallie would prob probably agree if she was here, just given that you know all these new opportunities, new sources of funding, new ways to, to be a journalist – um, I think that's only going to to grow as as we heard her say, you know this this model is spreading to other places. And I think that there's likely to be you know not just nonprofits, but other other types of of alternative models and other ways to tell stories. So 
that's that's you know how I look at things. I think that's a perfect note on which to end. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, we want to thank uh, Hallie Stockton for uh, for coming and being part of the t- of our uh, interview today. We want to thank Jenna for joining us here at the. Uh, the uh, what do we call this the, the wrap-up session why not yeah and uh, we want to thank you all for listening and uh, look forward to hearing your comments again we're on social media and uh, we'd love to hear from you we'd love to hear what you think and what you uh, would want us to talk about in the future so thanks for listening thanks everybody bye-bye